Hello and welcome to another wonderful mess of an episode of Disastrous History. This week's episode is going to go back to our roots. We are going to talk about a fire this week. This particular episode is going to cover the One Meridian Plaza Fire in Philadelphia. Now, it's been over a year since the last actual fire episode. I believe the last actual fire was the Great Fires of New York, all three of them. And then it's been almost a year since the last explosion episode, which I believe was the New London School explosion in May of last year. So it's been a long time since we've talked about my one true love of fire. So this should be a pretty good episode. So the building fire in question was in One Meridian Plaza in Philadelphia, which absolutely sounds like it should be the setting of a Die Hard movie, or Lethal Weapon, or something of that nature, either one. And it was built starting in 1968 and was finished in 1972. It was located on the corner of South 15th Street and Penn Square, which, if you spent time in Philadelphia, you will know is right across the street from Philadelphia City Hall, so this building was quite literally in the middle of downtown Philadelphia. The building was built to be a 38-story, 492-foot-tall high-rise that had been occupied on and off regularly since the completion of the building in 1972. When the building was first built, the city made no distinction between high-rise buildings and any other buildings. So it was, like, per city codes, when they built the building, there was no difference between a 50-story building and a two-story building. They were functionally the same thing in fire codes and all of that. So when this building was built, there were some key fire safety and protection measures that didn't exist at all in the building. We will get to that, but just know that right now that there were some very key, very important things that were missing from this building that would have helped prevent this disaster. The building itself consisted of 38 floors. 36 of those were actually occupied by office spaces, and two floors, the 12th and 38th floors, were mechanical floors. So they had, you know, your heating and air conditioning, your hot water heaters, all of that kind of stuff that helps keep the building running. They had two separate ones, likely uh, elevator, mechanical room, things like that were on the 12th and the 38th floor to keep the building running. The overall building was 243 feet long by 92 feet wide, which is about 22,000 square feet per floor. But with hallways and all of that, there was only about 17,000 occupiable square feet per floor. The actual building frame was steel frame with concrete poured floors. There were three stairwells and four elevator banks. Basically, this was an incredibly normal high-rise office building. There was nothing spectacular about it. It was your standard run-of-the-mill downtown Philadelphia office high-rise that was used for general office use. There were computers and papers and filing cabinets and all of that kind of stuff. It was incredibly normal. Now, when it was originally built, it was known as the Fidelity Mutual Life Building, and then after a series of sales and acquisitions and boring business junk, One Meridian Bank became the primary tenant in the building, and so it became known as One Meridian Plaza. So, the main tenant in this building was One Meridian Bank. They had their offices there for all of their corporate people, all of that kind of stuff. It was incredibly normal. People go in for a 9 to 5 and then leave at the end of the day, and then they would start up the next day so on and so forth, had the normal amount of fuel load, nothing unusual at all about this building. It was a regular high-rise building in Philadelphia. But the one thing that I did mention was weird about this building was the severe lack of fire protection in the building. Now, it wasn't awful, 
but it wasn't great. So one of the things that we as fire professionals, as engineers, as architects, as all of that, attempt to do to prevent fire spread in high-rise buildings is compartmentalize. If you remember back to Grenfell Tower, the reason the Grenfell Tower fire was such a disaster was because the fire was able to spread on the outside of the building significantly faster than anyone could have imagined. That was a failure of compartmentalization. What compartmentalization is, is if you have a fire that starts in a single room, you are attempting to keep that fire in that room for as long as possible. Now, we do that with uh, drywall, we do that with concrete, things like that. So, drywall, for instance, has a fire rating. It's an hour or two hours, depending on the thickness of the drywall. It's There's a range in there. That drywall is meant to hold up to fire for that long before it fails and spreads to the next room. Now, generally, drywall does a fairly decent job, and the fire that's spread in houses usually goes through doors, once they burn through them because they're made of wood and they're generally not fire rated, your interior doors are generally not fire rated for that long. They are fire rated, but they will go faster. Or if you leave the door open, the fire will spread to the room. Whatever, the open concept rooms, the fire will spread easily. That's, that's compartmentalization. You want to keep that fire in that room for as long as possible. Now in high rises, the goal is to keep that fire on that floor for as long as possible. So what they do is they'll have concrete, poured concrete floors because fire generally is not going to burn through concrete. Uh, they'll have steel uh, exteriors because fire's not going to burn through steel. And generally the only way you get communication between the fire floor and the floors above it is through exterior windows spread on the outside of the building. Different than Grenfell Tower because Grenfell Tower spread from the 4th floor to the 24th floor in about 20 minutes as opposed to a normal high-rise fire, where if you get f fire spread from the fire floor up to the higher levels, it generally takes 20 minutes just to get to the next level, because they don't have flammable material in the exterior of the building. I realize this episode is not about Grenfell Tower, but that's one of my big uh, pet peeves, and I love to harp back on that, because it's a fantastic example of how fire protection can fail if you try and earn a cheap buck. Anyway... This building was built with compartmentalization in mind. So if a fire starts on, say, the 14th floor, it's going to take a while to spread to the 15th floor because there is very minimal communication between the 14th floor and the 15th floor, generally only through the exterior, or if it manages to find an open staircase doorway, then it can spread up and occasionally will make it in through another doorway. There's generally very few communication between the floors in high-rises. Specifically so, if you have a fire on one floor, it cannot spread to other floors because then you have a big, big problem. So the actual building of the building, like the construction of the building, was not as much a problem here. What was a problem was the sprinkler system. Basically what you need to understand was there was kind of a sprinkler system in this building. When the building was built, when One Meridian Plaza was originally built, they were using fire code from 1949, in 1968. They were using fire code from 1949. This fire code meant that One Meridian did not need sprinklers except below ground level in the basement, of which... One Meridian had three basement levels, which all had sprinklers. 
The fire code was updated in 1984 that would require all high-rise buildings to have fully automatic sprinklers. Now I can hear you saying, okay, cool, this is a high-rise building, it needs to have sprinklers. But that's not how this works. So when a building is built, it goes on the fire code that is in effect when it is built. And it does not change from that fire code unless it changes occupancy. So, if a building was built in, say, 1965, and it never changes occupancy, so occupancy is if it's a commercial building or a residential building or an industrial building, it changes between those, that kind of thing. If it goes from, say, an industrial building to a residential, then it would have to update to the current fire code. But if you build a building in 1956, it's still going to be under whatever fire code was in effect at that time today because it never changed occupancy. So if you build, say, an office building in 1956, it could be going off of the 1949 fire code today. Now, it likely isn't because that would be crazy. It's likely that the owners of the building did make some fire code adjustments since then just to keep their people safe as we learned more, but they technically do not have to. Everything that is built before the new fire code is adopted is under the fire code it was built under. So, one Meridian Plaza, even though the new fire code in 1984 said, hey, if you're a high-rise building, you need sprinklers, it doesn't have to install sprinklers. The owner do not have to install sprinklers unless they change occupancy. Now, the owners had made plans to have the whole building retrofitted with sprinkler systems by late 1993 unless the tenants decided to request them to be installed before then. So let's say one of the tenants said, okay, we want sprinklers in our office space now. They would install them then. But if they didn't have them all installed by late 1993, they were just going to retrofit the whole building and call it good. So, unfortunately, this fire happened in 1991, not 1993 or 1994. So the building was not retrofitted with sprinklers. There were sprinklers on all of the 30th, 31st, 34th, and 35th floors. All four of those floors were completely retrofitted with sprinklers, the entire floor. There were partial sprinklers on the 11th and the 15th floor. So in essence, 32 out of 38 floors were entirely unprotected by sprinklers in a building that definitely needed it. Like this building absolutely needed it because of what it was being used for, that office space. And in the 1990s, there was going to be a significant amount of paper fire load in this building. There were going to be filing cabinets and paper everywhere. So this fire load is going to be fairly large. You have office furniture, you have paper all of that is going to be a very large fire load, and having sprinklers installed in this building would have helped dramatically. But because they had not, they had set that date of 1993, and the fire unfortunately happened before then, we don't have that option. The next issue we run into is smoke detectors. Now, there were smoke detectors in the building, which is good. The problem came. The smoke detectors were only in the entry and exit locations on each floor. So, at the elevator banks, at the stairwells. They were not out in the tenant spaces. 
So if a fire started in an office, that fire had a significant amount of time to build and build and build into a giant inferno before it set off a smoke detector, especially if those tenant spaces had doors closed and the fire started in an enclosed space. It's going to have a lot of time before it either makes a wall fail or the smoke manages to get out under the door and set off a smoke detector. That is going to be a problem because, as we all know, early detection means early suppression. Early suppression means a very small fire. And if you have it start out over the tenant space, well, it's going to be a long time before anyone notices, especially if it's after hours and no one is there besides a couple security guards. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So that brings us to the evening of February 23rd, 1991. It was approximately 8.20 p.m. in the evening on that February 23rd when one of the two guards on duty that evening began their patrol around the building to ensure everything was quiet and calm. The security guard had made his rounds all the way to the 30th floor and was hanging out taking in a break when an alarm began to sound at precisely 8.23 p.m. This guard thought he'd accidentally set off an intruder alarm and waited to find out what was happening. There were only two other people in the entire building at the time of this alarm, the building engineer and the lobby security guard, both on the first floor. The smoke alarm going off sent the elevators to the first floor as it's supposed to when the fire alarm goes off, so the building engineer went over to the elevator and used the manual control to travel to the location of the original smoke alarm, the 22nd floor. At this same time, the central alarm monitoring company called the front desk guard to notify them of the alarm on the 22nd floor. The guard in the lobby told the monitoring company that they were investigating the source of the alarm, but didn't know why the alarm was going off because the engineer hadn't reached the floor yet. Because of that, the monitoring company did not yet call the Philadelphia Fire Department, which will come back to haunt them. Now, knowing how fire alarms operate in buildings... This building engineer was probably expecting to find a whole lot of nothing when the doors opened on the 22nd floor. It's likely this wouldn't be the first time they've experienced the smoke detector in the building going off for absolutely no reason. Unfortunately, that is not at all what he found on the 22nd floor. Now I want you to take a ride with me real quick and just imagine this scenario. You're riding up to the 22nd floor. You can hear the smoke alarm blaring on and off. You probably think it's a false alarm because, I mean, let's face it, smoke detectors false alarm all the time. You hear the elevator ding, ding, ding as it goes past each floor as you slowly count up to the 22nd floor. Finally, you reach it. The elevator shudders slightly as it stops, as it does in almost every elevator. And the loud ding to let you know you're on the right floor but there's something off and you kind of grasp it just before the doors open. There's a weird smell. You can't quite place it, but there's just not enough time between when the elevator stopped and the doors opened for you to realize what's happening. And then the doors open and the expectation of a completely clear floor is immediately gone. The doors slide open and before they even get too far open, Heavy black smoke rolls into the elevator. It is hot. Extremely hot. 
And that's exactly the scenario that played out for this building engineer. It wasn't just heavy smoke and heat. It was so much smoke and heat, he couldn't leave the elevator to investigate anything. It was so much smoke and heat, he was immediately trapped on the floor of the elevator in the back of the elevator because this fire had grown so large, so quickly, that he couldn't even reach the buttons of the elevator to go back down to safety. Imagine that. You're going to investigate what you think is just a normal smoke detector alarm and are confronted with so much heat and smoke as soon as you open the door, you can't even reach the buttons on the opposite side of an elevator three and a half feet from you. You can't get your hand that high because it's so hot and you feel like you're going to die. Thankfully, the building engineer was able to radio down to the lobby guard that he was now trapped and couldn't reach the buttons to come back down. People have been trapped in some very terrible places in these episodes, in my, this podcast so far. Disasters have put some people in some pretty terrible places. But being stuck in an elevator that is rapidly filling with smoke and heat, not being able to reach safety that is literally three feet from you, all you have to do is push a button, has to be a new terrifying low. Like, that is otherworldly terrifying. And even radioing back down to the guard on the first floor, the guard down there didn't know how to operate the manual firefighter operation controls. So, this building engineer is trapped in an elevator on the 22nd floor of this building. With the fire department not coming, because no, the fire department doesn't know there's a fire yet, the central alarm monitoring company doesn't know there's a fire yet, the only people that know there's a fire is the building engineer trapped in an elevator, and the floor, first floor security guard who's trying to get that building engineer untrapped. So, this building engineer is in this elevator and is radioing down through the smoke and heat that is rapidly filling the elevator how to use the manual firefighting controls over the radio. He is teaching someone how to save his life over a radio in a metal and concrete building that is generally not conducive to using radios while trying not to burn to death. And he did it. Successfully. He taught the guard over the radio while trying not to die how to get him down from this raging inferno. And he made it back down and they were able to evacuate together. So with those two evacuating the building, that left the guard on the 30th floor, who was taking a break trying to figure out how he set the alarm off accidentally, as the only person left in the building. He was the only person left in the building, that is, until he listened to the radio chatter and listened to the building engineer save himself from burning to death in an elevator, that he realized, oh, uh, no, uh, definitely was not me, building is definitely on fire, and I need to get out. So he evacuated the building through one of the stairwells, and he noticed, pretty importantly for later on, that the stairwell was filling with smoke on his way down. All three of them made it out and met it up outside the building to ensure everyone was accounted for. Now there's some confusion as to when exactly the fire department was notified of the fire, they were for sure told of the fire by a passerby using a payphone at 8.27 p.m., but the Philadelphia Fire Department report states they were informed by the monitoring company prior to that. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's a four-minute difference. When the fire department arrived on the site at 8.31 p.m., 
they had heavy smoke and flames showing from one window on the 22nd floor. Now, depending on where that fire started, that could be a good or bad thing. Generally, it's not a good thing when there is fire already out a window because it's been burning long enough to actually shatter the window. So, that's generally not good. But, we don't really know contextually how bad it is inside just from that one size up from the exterior of the building. The initial response for this fire was four engines, two ladder trucks, and two battalion chiefs, which is a decent sized response considering that when they were likely called, all they got was smoke and maybe a fire. The second alarm for this fire was pulled at 8.33 p.m., which is literally 10 minutes after the fire was first discovered. The first arriving crews organized an attack team to head up to the fire floor and get water on the fire. Their instructions were to use the elevators to the 11th floor, then walk the rest of the way up. This part went fine. Now, it is important to note here that in high-rise buildings, power generally remains on throughout the entire fire incident. They are supposed to have protected their main power, and if that does fail, so if the main power does go out, they have emergency generators to keep the power on in the building to make firefighting operations easier for firefighters in the building. Now, that also goes back to the compartmentalization. If you have a fire confined to a single floor, you don't need to cut power to the entire building because that's going to make it a pain. If you have, say, let's use World Trade Center. You have 110 stories. If you have a fire on the 110th story, you do not want the firefighters walking up 109 flights of stairs just to have to get to the fire and then fight a fire on the 110th floor. They're going to be exhausted. They're not going to be able to fight that fire effectively. So power remains on in the building so that they can use elevators to get close to the fire and then walk the rest of the way up. No one wants to walk up 37 flights of stairs and then fight a fire. That's going to be exhausting. That will lead to firefighter deaths, firefighter injuries, and bigger fires because it's going to take them forever to walk up all those flights of stairs. So protecting that power supply and then maintaining redundant power supply is a very important part of designing high-rise buildings. Because if something goes wrong, you want to have that power so that if it's on one of the higher floors, people can get to it easily without being exhausted by the time they get there. So the attack team, the team that was sent in to put water on the fire in the first place, makes it to the 11th floor. They're getting ready to start walking up the stairs to get to the fire floor. And then all the lights go out. Which is supremely not helpful, but the building, obviously, has emergency generators. Except, they aren't working. At all. Now, firefighters are trained and used to operating without power or vision. Kind of comes with the territory. But no matter how much training you have, when you go from having vision and expecting to have vision to no vision, that is disorienting. It generally takes them a little bit less time to recover from it, but it's still one of those things of, okay, we have to change tactics here. They would only have flashlights to operate now. But this loss of power causes another issue for those firefighters on the 11th floor. Any tools they need to fight the fire would have to be carried up all 22 flights of stairs, which, again, they train for, but that is still exhausting. So now... Just to give a some summary of the situation, we have a fully involved fire on the 22nd floor, firefighters with an attack line on the 11th floor, 
and all of their backup on the ground floor. We also have no sprinklers, and we have no idea how big the fire is on the actual 22nd floor. We know that it's showing on the outside in one corner, but we don't know how much of the actual floor is involved. And we know, the fire department likely doesn't know, but we know that there is smoke in one of the uh, stairway banks, which is a problem because stairwells are supposed to be closed to keep the stairs free of smoke so people evacuating from the building can use them and so firefighters can use them and can see in the actual stairwell. But the attacking crew really only has one option, and that's to go up. So they walk their entire way up to the fire floor up the stairs. Upon arriving at the fire floor, they found the door locked, which is a choice. And so they did the only thing they could do, which was force the door open. Once they finally got that door forced open, they pulled the hose forward, opened it, and got no water. Like at all. Which is a problem because it's hard to fight fire when there is no water. So they retreated back down to the 21st floor, which was just below the fire floor, and attempted to make an attack on the fire from that floor. But again, when they tried to use the standpipe, which is, the standpipe is, if you go into stairwells and high-rise buildings, there's that red pipe in the corner. That is a standpipe. It provides water all the way up to the top of the building, so firefighters can grab a hose or carry a hose with them that's not charged, because a charged hose, charged means it's full of water, charged hose is extremely heavy, so they can just carry pre-made uh, strips of about 100 to 50 feet of hose up the stairs, they hook into that standpipe, turn the standpipe on, and they have water pressure. They hooked into the standpipe on the 22nd floor and got nothing. They had absolutely no water, which is a problem. So they went down to the 21st floor and hooked up to the standpipe there and then tried to make an attack and got nothing. That is not good. That, that, is, that is very, very bad. If you are in a fire and you open your hose and you get barely any water coming out, you're going to have a bad time. And because of this delay, because they had no water to fight this fire, because they were going to be delayed even longer, the fire had begun to spread upwards. The fire had now involved the entire 22nd floor and was making re-entry onto the 23rd floor through the windows on the outside of the building. So the fire has spread out exterior windows on the 22nd floor has broken the windows on the 23rd floor and is making re-entry into the building onto the 23rd floor from the outside it was also spreading through unprotected pipe chases in the walls so the drywall inside this office had failed or the fire had found places that the drywall was not covering so pipe chases is essentially holes that go through the concrete onto the next floor. It's for things like plumbing, electricity, data, all of that kind of stuff. If a fire manages to get into that pipe chase, it can send heat and smoke and superheated gases up through that pipe chase and cause it to spread onto second floors. So on a little tangent here, there is a building style that used to be popular called balloon framing. going to explain how pipe chases work real quick. So there's a, there's a, building style that used to be popular called balloon framing. What this was, was instead of how we build houses now, where we build the first floor, cover it all up, and then we build the second floor on top of the first floor, their studs in the wall would go from the first floor all the way up to the attic, no matter how tall the building was. So if it was a two-story house, it would, go from, it would be one long stud all the way up to the roof. What this did was, if, the fire made, if a fire in that building made it into the wall, 
it would spread up the balloon up the between the studs all the way up to the roof and you'd have an attic fire at the same time as you had a fire on the first floor the same thing happens with pipe chases so if you have a like if you're in your house if you have say plumbing that goes from the first floor from the basement up to the second floor all the way up to the roof or for whatever reason and a fire manages to get in there it will spread that fire all the way up into the attic and you will have a fire up there as well as at the first floor so in this building there were pipe chases that ran through the concrete those are supposed to be protected by uh fire resistant material to keep them from spreading the fire through those pipe chases these were not so the fire was able to spread from the 22nd floor to the 23rd floor and the 24th floor through those pipe chases as well as going on the outside of the building. Because of this, and because of the lack of water, or at least adequate water, the firefighters could absolutely do nothing about the upward spread of this fire. Now, as I said, in normal high-rise firefighting, firefighters carry uncharged hose line, hose without water in it, up the stairs to the fire floor or the floor just below it, fire generally burns up not down and connects to a pipe in the stairwell called the standpipe and as i said you probably remember them in stairwells and buildings that are multi-stories they're painted red they have connection valves on them occasionally they'll have a hose in the wall there that you can pull out and use for really small fires they generally don't have that much water in they, they don't put that much water out but they're there in case you want to use them but anyway the one meridian plaza building actually had standpipes and they did work, technically. They just weren't properly calibrated. Each of the standby connections had what is called a pressure-reducing valve. What these PRVs did was drop the pressure coming out of the standpipe to 60 PSI. So when they opened that fire, when they opened that door and started spraying on the fire, they barely got any water out. Because Philadelphia Fire Department's nozzles that they use on their hoses are called fog nozzles and they require 100 psi to properly function fog nozzles on hoses spray the water out in a fog pattern which essentially sprays the water out in almost a mist form and helps spread more water around to more flames and creates a barrier between firefighters and the heat and smoke so real quick to explain why this fog pattern works the way it does so in the past i have explained in dust explosions like the uh, Georgia sugar refinery explosion. The reason dust explodes is because there's a significant amount of surface area available for the fire to propagate through. And because it propagates so fast, it creates a pressure wave, which when it's confined causes an explosion. The easiest way to make fire spread is to have a significant amount of available surface area of a very small fuel. So, Sawdust in a pile doesn't burn well because there's very small surface area and it's very compact. That's why it takes so long for wood to ignite. You have to have a continuous uh, heat on the surface of wood because it needs to break down. It needs to pyrolysize the wood into available gases that then burn. Fun fact, uh, wood itself, the solid, doesn't burn. The heat decomposes the wood into a gas, and then the gas burns on the surface of the wood. It's not actually the solid that's burning. That's a whole different thing. Anyway, so the same thing uh, applies in extinguishing fires. It is not the actual water itself putting out the fire. The more surface area you have of water on those flames, the better chance you have of putting out the fire. So if you spray it out in a almost fog-like pattern, 
it will cover more surface area of this heat and will bring down the temperature of this fire significantly more, making it easier to put the fire out. It also helps protect firefighters because it's spraying out a big wide pattern that is preventing the heat getting it past all of those water droplets. Now, fog nozzles generally have two settings. There's the fog nozzle setting, which is a big wide spray that goes out in almost a shield-like pattern that sprays it out into, into droplets. And then there's a straight stream, which is literally what comes out of your hose at home. It just sprays in a straight stream. Uh, it's good for putting out hot spots, um, breaking holes in walls when you need to, uh, even though you're really not supposed to. Uh, things like that. It, it it has its purpose. But when you have a room that is completely engulfed in flanks, that is a fully involved compartment, you generally start with a fog nozzle because it will help bring the temperature of that room down because it's putting out a ton of surface area of water that will absorb a lot of that heat energy coming off of that flame. It's basically the same thing as fire spread. It's just the opposite. It's just putting out the fire instead of spreading the fire. Hope that makes sense. Anyway, the reason that it needs to be 100 PSI for these nozzles is creating that fog pattern requires a ton of pressure, and 60 PSI is not going to do it. It needs to be coming out at a high pressure because it's got to break up those water molecules into smaller droplets and spread them out in a big pattern. So you need a lot of pressure in order to do that. You need a lot of a lot of water coming out at a very fast rate to get it to break up into, into those big droplets. 60 PSI is not going to do it. Now, the pressure-reducing valves do have adjustments that can be made to allow them to flow the proper pressure. So they could have been adjusted up to allow 100 PSI for Philadelphia to use their fog nozzles effectively. The problem was, none of the trucks on scene had the proper tool to adjust the PRVs to give them the ability to actually fight the fire. And no one knew where they could get the tool, or knew someone who knew how to use the tool there in time to save the building. In an attempt to get the standpipes to 100 PSI, they connected multiple hose lines from the actual fire engines themselves, and began pumping into the standpipe system to attempt to boost the water pressure to 100 PSI level, but it didn't work. The PRVs kept it at 60 PSI, and they were unable to use their host streams effectively. And the fire raged on. By this point, the fire had spread fully to the 23rd floor and the 24th floor, and was beginning to push into the 25th and then the 26th floor. Now, if you remember back to when we talked about the fire protection systems, we still have four floors to go before we hit any sprinklers, because the first set of sprinklers installed in the building is on the 30th floor. We have no water pressure to fight the fire, so all suppression activities are just trying to keep the fire out of the stairwells. We have no lights to see anything, so everything is done by crawling in flashlight, because they can't stand because it's too hot. They have to crawl if they're above the 22nd floor. We have no elevators, and the command post is on the 20th floor. So any relief for firefighters conducting suppression activities, which there are none, basically, has to climb 20 floors before relieving those who are actively trying to fight the fire. Everything is bad, and it is only just starting. Now, at this point, there's another problem that's being created. The Philadelphia Fire Department is realizing that smoke is filling up on the 38th floor and is starting to bank down floor by floor by floor, 
as it gets closer and closer to them and is starting to fill up the stairways, making it extremely difficult for them to function in the stairways and see with what little light they actually have. Now, the solution the fire department came up with to fix this problem was to assign three firefighters from Engine 11 to go on a mission to open a hatch or a door at roof level to allow the smoke, heat, and gases and all that to escape through the top floors to allow them to work more efficiently in the stairwell, keeping it clear of smoke. It was simple. Climb to the top of the building on the 38th floor and open an access hatch to allow the smoke and heat to escape. So the three firefighters set off from the 20th floor together. Captain David Holcomb, Firefighter Phyllis McAllister, and Firefighter James Chapel. We don't know exactly what time they started this climb, but it was somewhere around 9 p.m. So it's fairly late at night, it's dark out, the power is out in the building, and the building's full of thick black smoke. So it's dark, and they're doing this all completely blind or by flashlight. This is not a fun assignment. They also have to climb all 18 floors in full bunker gear and SCBA with masks on because, again, the building is full of thick black smoke, and if you take them off, you will die. But this is going to be a little bit more difficult than I had mentioned because what I didn't mention earlier when I talked about having the elevator banks and the stairwells is that every couple floors, the stairwell shifts over somewhat to make room for mechanical rooms and other things like that. So they will have to leave the stairwell, travel down a hallway slightly to find the door back into the stairs. And they're doing this in a building that is no power. It's the middle of the night and it's full of thick smoke and they only have flashlights. So they have to go out of the stairwell door, down the hallway, and hope they go in the right door again to go further up the stairs all the way up to the 38th floor. It was into these conditions the firefighters headed to the floor. They would never make it. The firefighters radioed back not long into their journey that they had left the stairwell and were lost on the 30th floor. Command attempted over the radio to guide them to a secondary stairwell, but were unsuccessful. A few minutes later, Captain Holcomb called over the radio requesting to break a window for ventilation to find fresh air. Then a few moments later, one of the firefighters called over the radio the words no firefighter ever wants to hear. Captain is down. This was about 9.30 p.m. Search and rescue teams were immediately dispatched to the 30th floor and began a search of the floor as well as a search and rescue team that was landed on the roof via helicopter to begin a search up there. The teams found nothing on the 30th floor, 31st floor, or the 32nd floor. Multiple search and rescue attempts were made via helicopter to get to the now radio-silent firefighters, but had to be abandoned from landing on the roof due to low visibility from the smoke and heat updrafts from the fire. They were not going to abandon the firefighters, and so began an exterior search of the building looking for broken windows on the exterior of the building to try and find the lost firefighters. After some time, they found a broken window on the 28th floor. A search team was quickly formed and headed to the spot the helicopter spotted the shattered window. Just inside the window, the team found all three firefighters unconscious together. It was 2.15 a.m., about five hours after the firefighters had been given their assignment. They were quickly moved to medical triage and resuscitation was attempted but was unsuccessful. All three firefighters were declared dead on the scene. 
firefighting operations would continue inside the building until 7 a.m. before they finally decided to evacuate all personnel from the building and operate only from a defensive position due to fears the building might collapse on itself. Several firefighters had also been injured so far in operations, including one firefighter who received a severe injury after being hit by falling granite from the exterior of the building while checking on hose lines. Eventually, the fire burned up to the 30th floor and was extinguished by sprinkler heads on that floor that had finally activated. In the end, the fire would be extinguished and declared under control at about 3 p.m. on February 24th, 1991. The origin of this fire was on the 22nd floor in one of the offices. Earlier that day, a general contractor had been doing renovation work in the office. Workers from the contractor had been using linseed oil to refinish some ward working that day. When they left, they piled approximately 25 pounds of soaked rags in a pile in one of the offices and left. Now, I'm not sure if I've talked about it on before on this podcast, but certain oils will spontaneously combust when left to dry in a poorly ventilated area. So, basically, the natural drying process of linseed oil is exothermic in nature, meaning that as it dries, it releases heat. If you say pile 25 pounds of rags soaked in the oil on top of each other as the rags dry, the heat being released on the bottom of that pile has nowhere to go, and the heat being released from those rags builds and builds and builds until it reaches the combustion threshold for the fabric, and it ignites. 25 pounds of rags is absolutely plenty of available fuel to really allow that fire to reach a critical threshold. Now, there are a lot of different types of oils that can spontaneously combust. Big one is linseed oil, um, wood stain, things like that can spontaneously combust. And if you leave them in confined spaces, like if you, you, if you stain wood and then you throw the rags that you use to wipe the excess stain away, you put them in a trash can and you do not let them dry out first, they can spontaneously combust inside the trash can. If you just pile them on top of each other, they can spontaneously combust. Generally, the recommendation is, if you are staining, it is to spread them out on an open area so they can dry where the heat can dissipate, or put them in a metal container with water and put the lid on top of it so that there is no way for it to combust because it's soaked in water. Personally, I lay mine out on the ground and let them dry. That's just what I do. But don't put them in an enclosed space and definitely do not pile them all together because it will spontaneously combust and you will have a fire. With this particular situation, how far away the smoke detector was made a huge difference in how quickly this fire was detected. Because a spontaneous combustion is a slow smoldering fire, it could be a while before that actual fire got to flaming combustion. But because the smoke detectors were so far away, it allowed that flaming combustion to build and build and build and build before it finally set off the smoke detector, letting the guards know that there was an actually a fire inside the building. And then it took even longer when they said, oh, we don't know if there's a fire or not. We're not going to don't call the fire department yet. It's there were a lot of choices that were made that allowed this fire to get to where it was that eventually led to the line of duty deaths of three firefighters. This particular fire caused approximately $100 million in damage in the end. The building eventually sat vacant for years and then was torn down in Center City, Philadelphia, which is a huge deal. But the real impact was the changes that were made to the fire code after the fire because of these line-of-duty deaths. 
all high-rise buildings were required to be retrofit with sprinklers by no later than 1997. It wasn't, oh, you can go off of whatever fire code was in effect when the building was built. All high-rise buildings had to have sprinklers by 1997. Also, NFPA 14, which is the standard for standpipes, was entirely rewritten as a result of this fire and a creation of an entirely new standard, NFPA 25, which is basically the standard for maintaining water-based fire protection systems, was created because of this particular fire. And then another major impact was alarm companies began to automatically notify fire departments upon any fire alarm activation rather than wait for confirmation because the central monitoring company took a lot of heat for not calling the fire department as soon as they received the notification because the approximate four-minute delay doesn't seem like much, but a room can reach flashover in good conditions within one minute and 30 seconds. Flashover is literally, and I'm not joking, literally everything in the room burning. So uh, you have fire growth. is The fire starts, it spreads, it, the fire spreads along the ceiling, it uh, burns more and more fuel. Eventually it will reach a point where the heat inside the room becomes such that everything in the room that is combustible, Every single thing, the smoke, any dust, the floor, the walls, all furniture, anything, immediately just bursts into flames throughout the whole thing, and it will cause damage the entire, the entire floor to ceiling in the room can reach 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It is a whole thing, and if you were inside a room that reaches flashover, you are not coming out of that room alive, period, end of discussion. There is no way, no way to just survive a flashover inside of a room. You will be cooked like a chicken. Um, so that four minute delay does not seem like a lot, but when you already have a built in delay because the fire department has to respond to wherever you are from the fire department, that four minute delay is the difference between life and death, saving a building or not, and a whole lot of other things. But the main one is that is the difference between life and death. Now, the particular deaths in this one likely they may have been prevented with an earlier response because with an earlier response, you get there faster. The fire hasn't grown as much in that four minutes because four minutes is a lot of time and fire time. Four minutes is the difference between a single room being on fire and an entire house being on fire. Four minutes is the difference between uh, the bed being on fire and an entire room being on fire. Like that is a huge difference. So if the fire department gets there four minutes earlier, they have a chance. They have a faster time to find a smaller fire that is not the entire twenty-second floor being involved, and they never have to send those firefighters to roof to the roof to uh, ventilate the stairwell. They never get lost. They never have a line of duty death. So that was a big change as well. In the end, this was a hugely influential fire in the advancement of water-based fire protection systems. In the advancement of how fire departments respond and fight high-rise fires. With that, we've reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, this is one of my favorite things to do. I love making episodes for you guys. I'm very thankful that you're here. Um, I always have my social medias, our disastrous history on everything. So um, I hope you guys stay safe. And remember to check your smoke detector batteries.